Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And today we have a very, very special guest. We are so excited that is here with us, and that is author Sarah Taino. Welcome to the podcast, ma'am. Hello, friends. How are you? So we always kick things off with icebreakers. Well, we've recently started kicking things <laughs> off with icebreakers, I'll say. But before we get into that, we were chatting a little bit about your name <laughs> And specifically after having read the book, I was like, is this, is this a connection? And you shared with us that it is. So can you talk about it for us, to, for the listeners? Because your book, Sarah and I were reading it and we were talking, it feels very unlike any special edition I feel like we've read. It's this yes. really fresh perspective. And we just mm-hmm. want to to fangirl from top to bottom. So can we start there? And then Sarah will get into our icebreakers. Well, um, we were talking earlier in the show and, uh, or before the, the, the show, and you, you did, you brought up a good point that Tainos are actually the native Indians. Not Well, they, they come from the Arawak Indians who sort of populated the entire Caribbean and South American you know, region. And Tainos are very specific to the Cuban and you know Puerto Rican islands. And it is, it is connected to the Indians, but I chose that name also because when I was growing up my and, and even you know my grandmother um, she was sort of a little bit different from the other siblings in her family she had the really really straight black hair and the you know the dark 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 eyes and sort of the olive features and so they used to call her Lataina as a nickname um, because of that and so it was sort of in, in Puerto Rico it's a little like Italians like we give nicknames to everybody she that was her nickname And so I kind of, as a homage to her, I chose that name, you know, as my pen name, because I, you know, I kind of remember every time someone says it, I'm like, (laughs) they're calling her. So that's where that comes from. That's beautiful. And she was important to me because she she raised me um, as a youth, Uh, you know, when, after my mom passed away, she raised me. So I was, I had a very strong connection. Uh, with my maternal grandmother. And it's like you're bringing her on this journey with you. Mm-hmm. She is. She's always with me. She's she's a big deal. She was, she was a character. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she used to, like, a lot of the stories and the anecdotes you'll see in the, the book or a lot of them are things that were handed down to me from her. So she's always, she's always there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So let's get into some icebreaker questions. Uh, what is one book you wish you could read again for the first time? You know, when I was, I, oh, wow, well, that's a hard question because there's a lot of books. Like, I'm a huge reader. I read a lot more than I write. Um, and sometimes I think reading is my biggest procrastination tool, which, um, because it's hard to write. It's, like, really hard. So I'm like, mm, I'm That's such a good book. procrastination, yeah. right? Let me go grab a Katie Roberts or let me, uh, Robert, excuse me, remember me? Let me go grab a Robert. <laughs> Adrian Aretha, you know, because I'm going to learn the right that way. Um, uh, my biggest, uh, the book that I wish I could reread again, um, it's, I always say this, it's such an important book, was Glitterland by Alexis Hall. I wish I could reread that book from beginning to end because that book was such a discovery. And then when I reread it, I'm like, I wish I didn't know this was coming because this is great. Um, so definitely that one. <laughs> I think also American Dreamers by uh, Adriana Aretha is another book that I wish that I could just start oh, yeah. it all over, start the whole series over fresh, because that book was such a standout for me. Like for me, that was the book, like Nesto has the voice of the men that I grew up with. And that's not a voice you hear a lot. 
in romance, you know, like the working class immigrant, sort of the hustler, you know, I'm going to get this done and I'm going to make this work no matter what. You don't, I, I just feel like it was such a fresh voice. And so I would, I would reread that series. In fact, I, I, I don't, re, I haven't reread the books in a little while because at some point I will go back so that it'll feel fresh to me, even though I know it's going to happen. But I wish I could, I wish I could start that series again because it was phenomenal. Uh, what is one of your most read authors? You know, I've read almost uh, everything that Priscilla Oliveris has written. I love Priscilla Oliveris because she has this great way of sort of, um, tying family into her stories that really threat you know like she's able to thread it through without like sort of overwhelming the narratives i read her stuff um so much some other uh, writers that i really really love i love um reese ryan um she writes an entire desire series and her, de- her books are so good like the way that she draws, like she makes you love the secondary characters as much as the main characters. And so when she yes. comes, the book of hers comes out, you're just like reading and you know, you know, I want a book for that guy or I want a book for that one because she does such a great job of just fleshing out in just these sentences. She's able to like flesh out these characters and she does such a great job. Another person that I'm keeping my eye on that I'm really crazy about, and I have to admit a bias, I live in Florida. So I have a tendency like to really enjoy stories that are set in Florida because Florida is such a, a weird and wacky and wonderful place. Yeah. You, can, you, you have Orlando and you have Miami and Tampa, which are like the cities. And then you have like places like the university towns like Tallahassee and Gainesville. And then you have the outback where anything has there's like alligators and pythons yeah and the florida man and it's like you're just you can do a lot with florida as a setting and then you have like northern florida that feels kind of like southern alabama and georgia it's so weird and you even get like almost the four seasons i don't want to say like you almost get the four seasons like at the you know florida georgia border you know and so it's just such a dynamic place that gets you know sort of overwritten sometimes by the news but Anyway, Nadine Gonzalez, like, so she is a big author. She wrote uh, when in, you know, when in Miami, she wrote um, the Scandal in the VIP Suite book so much, especially her Miami-based books, because she, what's really neat about Nadine is she's, she's from, she's from, her parents are, are, you know, Haitian. She comes from that really strong Haitian background. And so she infuses that into her books. You're getting Miami, you're not getting Cuban Miami, though, which you can get too from other books, but you're getting that diaspora and it's so much fun to read because you're just like, that is so cool. You know, it reminds you so much. She really just catches the flavor of that sort of part of Miami and and Miami in general. I just love reading all her books. So she's my girl. I love that you mentioned that because her book, and I felt like this with your book. So I don't want to get too far ahead and like with the book, but they both are in like these city environments but they still are like small town. They feel small town community, that charm. And that's what I love. I'm like, cause I have this thing with big city, small town sometimes, but if it's a big city, you know, Sarah and I live in big cities. You still feel sometimes like you live in a small town cause you stick to your part, you know? And I love, I love saying that. I love saying that. So yeah, her book set in Miami, your book, which we're going to get to. There's so much you can do. I feel like there's so much you can do and explore, you know, with that setting. And yeah, I think that people underestimate just how Nietzsche we can get in a large, because I lived in, you know, I lived in Jersey City and Hoboken. People don't realize that you can, 
you, you people, we have a tendency to draw a little square around the little space. And so like, I knew all the people on my neighborhood and across the street, maybe that was my universe, my street, but that was my spot, my bubble. And so when people talk about, well, you're in the big city and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a big city and it's pretty massive. And I imagine in Manhattan, it must be dozens of times uh, more magnified that feeling from the outside. But I'm, when you live in it, it's different. You do create communities um, and the boundaries are set completely arbitrary. It could be the park. It could be the bodega. It could be, you know, the big, you know, you're on a one way, one, you know, two lane street and it's the double lane boulevard. That's the boundary for your neighborhood. So, you know, people, we do that because we need community. And so we build and um, it's not exclusive just to small towns. I think you know, it's definitely you see that in the city. And yes, Nadine captures that. She captures that flavor. And it's so much fun to read that because of that. What is one of your favorite romance tropes to read? Oh, here's the thing. I'm um, a bit of a, a slut when I read <laughs> because I love everything. Like, as long as it's a good story. That's I fine. <laughs> love everything. However, I do have periods, right? So for a period I was... Um, you know, I was reading a lot of like uh, friends to lovers, you know, I was reading um, enemies to lovers. Right now I'm into a rivalry to lovers type of thing, because one of the stories that I'm sort of working on in my brain involves a rivalry. And so I'm trying to like read really good examples to them to sort of feel my way through the trope. Because um, one thing that I learned from reading and writing, you know, Harlequin is you really need to get those tropes you know, set in your mind, know them inside out so that then you can wreck your readers with them, right? And um, so that's where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm really into that rival to lovers <laughs> trip, but I do have a soft spot for the slow burn. Like I love slow burn novels and maybe I also enjoy writing them. I, oh, and I just finished the manuscript for a um, grumpy sunshine and that was a lot of fun. That was, I love the grumpy for everyone else, but I'm only soft for you. That just, that slays me. So we love romance origin stories. How did you become a romance reader? You know, when I hear that origin story, I feel like like Wolverine's origin story, like a superhero origin story. So now I'm like a superhero. <laughs> I feel so, I feel so special. Okay. So really it's my mom's fault. It's my mom. Because when I was growing up, you know, my mother came to, from Puerto Rico with her family um and she was already sort of a she was already a, a teenager so her english wasn't perfect <clears throat> and so what she did was she, she she wasn't great at school obviously because of the language foreign language issue but um she read a lot and that's how she built up her english proficiency and so she used to go to the used shop and she would buy the 10 cent you know Harlequin Presents. In that time, it was the gray ones with the red and blue. There were the American romance. She used to buy those. And the one with the beige cover, which is mm-hmm. the American romance so line. She would yes. get all of those category romances and bring them home by bag. And she'd read them. And she'd only keep the ones that she liked because she'd go back and she'd trade the other ones. And I would sneak in. I'd, I, I would especially grab the ones that she kept because obviously she valued them. And I love the idea of taking something that I shouldn't <laughs> yeah. because I was a bit of a, a trash child. I like to take things. So I would take <laughs> I would take her books. I'm like, why are you hiding this from me? <laughs> and I fell in love with that. I love the stories. And I was already a big reader. So it was like I love and, and they were so scandalous. Like if you were like a little girl reading those books, you're like, ooh, 
What did they just do there? Mm. And so then I I remember trying my hand. I remember trying my hand at one. I think it was like a, I think it was like a ten or eleven year. I was really young, and of course, like I'm ruined for life now. And I'm writing the, I'm writing my own romance, right? And I had, I remember I had them folded in like on a note paper and tucked in the back of my jeans, right? And so I'm walking around the house, I'm doing stuff. And my mom's like, "What do you have in your back pocket?" And um, I was like, "Nothing." And then mom found it. He grounded me for a long time. <laughs> That was the, my inauspicious beginning to Roman writing. Um, she was not impressed. Because, <laughs> of course, I skipped all the romance part. I went to the good stuff. So she was not happy about that. But um, that was it. So I wrote a lot of fan fiction afterwards. So, yeah, that's that's where. But it is. It's, it started with my mom. That seems to be a trend here on the podcast. <laughs> There's a lot of fan fiction writing. <laughs> You know what I'm loving? I'm loving that people are so out there with it. Like they're so, it, even <clears throat> even like five years ago, people were like, oh, don't mention that you started in fan fiction, that publishers won't take you seriously. And then like your entire fandom shows up <laughs> five years later and they're all publishing and you're like, mm, maybe right? this is not the best kept secret out there. Um, and it's nice that people talk about it openly because there is yeah. that, there is an intersection mm-hmm. with that wish fulfillment and just, well, if I can't find what I want to read, I'm going to write what I want to read. And I just love that spirit in fan fiction, that sort of thing, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about yeah. marginalized communities. I remember in the fandoms that I was in, I, I made every main character Puerto Rican, like every main character was part of my, my, you know, Captain America was Puerto Rican, you know, I made everyone because I wanted to see representation. So I was rewriting canon and nobody cared. Yeah, cared. Mm-hmm. It was great. People were like, "Okay, yay!" And um, so there is that. There's a lot of that wish fulfillment crossing into you know romance and science fiction and fantasy. It's all there. Um, a lot of us have that foothold in fan fiction. So, and I, I love that. I love that people own it. You mentioned on your website that when you're not writing, one of the things you can be found doing is teaching. Can you share with us what you teach? Yeah, I'm a high school language arts teacher. So um, surprise, no surprises there. I teach literature <laughs> and language. I do also have um, I do also have a master's in second language acquisition, which um, you know, given my background and given also I, I have a I speak multiple languages because I, I I lived for many years outside the United States. I lived for eight years in Europe, so I learned German and I learned Italian, and so. I got certified for teaching second language acquisition. So I usually I have the, the I have the the funniest schedule on campus because I'll have like my honors and you know advanced placement classes and then I always have two preps of language acquisition. So I'm speak I'm teaching across that, you know, spectrum. And but it's great because it exposes me to all kinds of stories and all kinds of people. And so that's sort of where I live. So I'm reading, you know, Shakespeare all the way to, you know, you know, popular YA lit because whatever it takes to sort of teach, you know, where I need to teach. So I, and I, and I, I love my job. I love my day job. So I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to do both. Is that right? Is that why Val's brother Rafi is a teacher in the book? He's a math teacher though, which is my husband is an engineer. And so I have a pretty, I didn't want to write about myself. Like okay. I want to write about ah. um, So I was like, I'm going to make you a math guy because math people are funny. <laughs> yeah. And my, like they have a well, there was some very real teacher things in there, yeah. like him funding everything for his classroom and always grading papers. Mm-hmm. I was like, 
is she basing this off of her? <laughs> I, and I hope to be able to write Ruffy's book eventually. Like, I've, well, I've written it, but I'm hoping to publish yes, Ruffy's book. Let's put it that way. And Ruffy is a lot of fun character. Well, we'll talk about when we talk about Val and everything, but Ruffy's a really fun character. And even though Val has a lot of me, Ruffy has is very connected to my experiences as well as a teacher and in other ways too. Because um, he's, there's... Definitely, like my, because my son also is very mathematically inclined, like my husband. And so there's a, they think a little bit differently, just they're able to abstract better. And there's just so many interesting things. And I put those things into Rafi's character. So he's a lot of fun um, for me. He's a lot of fun for me to write. And there is that teacherly aspect. So when did you begin writing and when did you realize you wanted to pursue pub, uh, you wanted to su- pursue writing professionally? Well, I started writing, as I told you, r- when I was really young, you know, and so I had that, you know, sort of um, catastrophic run in with my, my first reader, my mom. Um, and then after that, but I used to also, <laughs> when I was growing up, I grew up in, um, in Central Florida and, and I used to play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons because I was the only girl cousin amongst a lot of boy cousins. Like I didn't get my... First female cousin on my <laughs> yeah until I was like fourteen. I was like, thanks guys, you really waited a long time to give me what I wanted. But I had all boys, and so they used to play Dungeons and Dragons and GI Joe, and it was all boy games. And so what my cousin and I used to do is we used to write like our own He-Man comic strips and our own Thundercat comic strips. And he would do, I would do the writing, and he would do the drawing because my my cousin was is really good at drawing, and so he would draw the 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 strips, and then I would, you know, we would create these together and we did and then we would go out and act them out um and I was usually on the receiving end of that but in, in because I was the only girl so uh, but we would at play those out and so I started really young I was always writing always journaling but I never thought it was something that I could do it's weird when you're growing up um especially I grew up in um you know the the east ward that I write about you know I came from a very sort of you know, low income part of the city in Jersey City was not what it is now. And you don't think you don't see the possibilities, right? So when I grew up, I didn't think I thought author is out there in space, professor out there in space, you know, there was a very limited idea of what I could do. And so I didn't come to become it didn't become a reality until maybe I think I published one of my I tried to publish one of my first stories in like 2013. So I was already near my 30s, you know, when I was trying to, I used to publish like poetry and things like that just for fun, but to actually publish something and think, oh, maybe somebody will buy it and actually pay me for this, you know, that came much later um, in life. So I've been writing all my life in some form and a lot of narrative. I have some years because it became a coping mechanism too to write. I mean, there were some years that I wrote hundreds of thousands of words, but, you know, they were just for me. They weren't for anybody else. And so... Um, that didn't come until later in life, the idea of publishing it. I don't know. It, it Again, it was an offshoot of, you know, having written fan fiction for almost decades and seeing the reaction that people got to my writing. And they did. I woke up one day and said, you know, I, I could probably do this. I could do this. And so I, I tried it. And I, well, at least I, I did it, I think, or I started. I'm at the beginning of my career, so, you know. Yeah. Um, one of your short stories, Oil and Vinegar, is part of a a more perfect union, a voting themed romance benefit anthology. 
Can you share with us how this anthology came to uh, came to be and how oil and vinegar became a part of it? Um, really, it was a, a project that was dreamed up by Adrian Bell, who's a, who's a writer, and um, she wanted to do something that would benefit, you know, voting rights. You know, that it was at the very, you know, around the election time, um, the romancing the vote had just had a massive success. I per- participated th- th- with that uh, mostly on the uh, auction. I, I bought stuff. <laughs> But, you know, you know, she wanted to do something a little bit more, <clears throat> rightfully, because she perceived <clears throat> that the election wouldn't be the end of it, that there would be a need to really continue to, you know, try to fund, you know, efforts. And we, you see, you know, you know, what's happening. It becomes important. So she created this anthology and my friend and co-writer, R.L. Merrill, um, with whom I just finished the a co-written project with, she invited me. She said, you should, you know, you should join. And um, so I wrote Oil and Vinegar and Oil and Vinegar, uh, is um, they were actually um, two character. My two characters in that story um, were Yara and Lena Paulina. They were actually already the leads of a much longer story that I have planned out. Um, uh, Paulina is um, uh, emigrated from Venezuela. You know, there's a lot of de- uh, destabilization of the Venezuelan government, and we have a lot of Venezuelans moving into South Florida. <clears throat> Yara is um, a Puerto Rican ex-convict. She's finally gotten out of prison. Um, she is. She has a cleaning service. She lives in Central Florida in Kissimmee. Like it's like basically my, you know, very, very close to where I, what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing. And I wanted to write this story about these two ladies. And so I have it planned out. So when I had the opportunity to incorporate a short story, I said, well, let me play a little and live with these characters a little bit. And so I wrote Oil and Vinegar, which is about, you know, this couple who are trying to get this group of women to a voting station. Like that's basically, and and it's more of like a slice of life. It's not the other stories in the collection are romance. Like there's a romance arc. Mine is more, mine was more of a slice of life, which is why they kind of put it at the beginning of the book. Cause it was like, this is the segue into the rest of the book. Um, it's very much, it's very much just a, a view of a day in the life of these characters. And so it was a lot of fun to write and I want to live with them a little bit. You know, I want to, cause I want to write their story one day. So that was the, that was the rationale for that. And we did well. I mean, you know, it's still out there and it's still available. The romance includes you mentorship. We have to talk about it. So this is an opportunity that was created in 2019 by Harlequin and your submission was selected from amongst 11 finalists with crazy and over 160 submissions. So congratulations. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, can you share with us how you learned of this opportunity and what the experience was like for you? Like when when we saw the book and we were introduced to you, I was like, Sarah, is this a thing? <laughs> we yeah. know, like we didn't know this was a thing. We're always hearing of these contests, but like yeah. after the fact. So what happened? <laughs> it, you know, I was in the middle of querying the same book. Yeah, I was querying the book and then I saw this contest totally accidentally, just kind of, I think it was on Twitter or it was on the Harlequin website. I know I saw it and I read the requirements. I said, you know what? My story could suit. In fact, however, though, I was like, I'm not sure though. The manuscript was really long. Like I sent them something like an 85,000 word manuscript. And I remember, and I was like, well, you know, it's set in an urban setting. So I don't know what line they would put it in, but you know what? What do you care, Cynthia? Like this, I mean, Sarah, this is a thing. You got to try this. This is really great. And it's Harlequin. Like it's where I started. It's almost like going back yeah. home, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm gonna try it. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't yep. think I had a great chance. I'm not gonna lie, because you never do. You you always think that you're just like competing against, and you are. You're competing against great 
talented people and you don't know if your stuff is going to float to the you know top or to the attention of whoever's reading and so but i said you give it a try you know that's my philosophy on everything just try the thing you never know what will happen and so when i applied um i had forgotten about it and i was moving on with querying and writing other stories okay. and then, listen so they called me to tell me and i missed the first call and they left the voicemail and I didn't check my voice. Oh, gosh. So I'm telling you, like, I was, like, determined to, like, like, I was determined to, like, blow this, I guess. I don't know. Because I never checked my messages on my phone. I'm the worst. And so, <laughs> and then finally, they catch me during my lunch break. And I get that call. And I was dying. I was, like, I had to step outside. I had to breathe. <laughs> like, I was like, there's no way that I got this. Like, there's no way. It was just like totally something that I didn't, I don't, I'm not, I'm like every other author, we nurture our insecurities like our pets. And so mine are huge. And so I did not expect it. And so when it hit, I was, wow. And then I was assigned this a phenomenal editor and I didn't believe I could work with him, um, Charles Greensman. And he has basically, you know, taken me through this entire process of, well, this is how we come up with, this is the, this is how we do the, you know, the query and the synopsis and the first 30 pages. And this is how we edit. And this is what happens every single step. And it was such an illumination. Like I had, and the resources that Harlequin has for their writers is unbelievable. And so I was just like, wow, I was overwhelmed by, and I'm still overwhelmed because I still get support from them and I still get, you know, um, help from them as we're developing other projects, you know? Um, so they're, they're just amazing. Awesome. And I, that's why I tell authors just to be it, go for it. Yeah. Just go for it. You never know what can happen. Never know. That's so awesome. So it was like more of an open, like the submission that you weren't submitting to a specific line. You were just submitting because we're wondering whether or not, like, were you writing with special edition in mind? Yeah. Or were you just writing? It's funny because... Because I'd, I'd grown up reading Harlequin, I was kind of familiar with the lines, you know, so I knew that I could have ended up anywhere. I'm going to be honest with you. I really thought my book would land in Karina. And the reason is because there's a lot of LGBT characters in my book. My book is very diverse. You know, I have a gay, um, the brother is gay, um, the cousin is lesbian. I have a trans character that she hasn't appeared yet. Um and it's so, because for me, it was really important that the diversity go as it was as intersectional as possible. I wanted to really represent a huge sprawling family in which like everyone's there because that's a reality. My family is extremely diverse and it's a huge family, very diverse family. Um, and so I wrote that with that in mind. And I was thinking, well, if they, if they selected it for the five minutes that I thought that I even had a chance, I said, oh, you know, if they selected, they're probably landing in Karina. It sounds like something that Karina would take, right? Because it's that, and no, they told me special edition. And I was mm -hmm. like, really? And not because, because it's urban, urban setting. Yes. And, and I always associate special edition with like cowboys and small towns. And, yes. and they're like, no, 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 no. You have a small town feeling. And this is all about community and family. And mm -hmm. so what I do is I'm like, okay. So I've, I've been, you know, when I was selected for special edition, I started reading all the last, you know, as many of the latest special editions that I hadn't read. Um, from the last five years. And yeah, the, the line has evolved and changed and grown to encompass so many different um, examples mm -hmm. of family and examples of community. And I was like, yeah, this is, they're right. <laughs> That's why they get paid the big bucks and I don't. <laughs> you know, they don't. Yeah. And it works. It works. But it, it, the first time that they told me, yeah, I was a little bit like, oh, oh, okay. 
that's that's neat. Also because there's a millionaire involved. Yes. <laughs> that could have been designed. There's like there's just uh, they, but they 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 nailed it. It's it feels like it's the right place for it. So a delicious dilemma. Let's talk about it. It's your Harlequin special edition debut. And there is so much to love about Val and Philip's romance. Listeners, those are the two main characters. Mm -hmm. It's a beautifully written story about the fear of how the fear of betrayal shapes us, specifically with Val, and the things we don't see because of that fear. So can you take us back to the beginning stages of writing Philip and Val's romance and share where the inspiration for their story came from? Can I say, first of all, that I really love how you said that. I mean, I had never thought to put it in that in that way, but Val is blinded by her mm-hmm. fear. Like she, and her fear is, yeah, it's almost mm-hmm. like compounded, you know? So she has her fear because she lost her mother in such a sudden way. And then, you know, the ex, the breakup. And and so- Then that Luke. Yeah, then Luke. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, that Luke. Anyway. And so we all got that one breakup. We all got that one ex where we're like, yeah, okay, fall in a ditch. Right. Um, so, you know, she has those two really big experiences in her background. And one thing that I wanted to capture about um, Val is, you know, when you lose someone that important at a young age, it rewrites you as a personality. So like, because she's the oldest sibling, she had to step up. She might not have been ready for it, but she had to step up. She had to take on a role for which she was not completely prepared. And so that leaves marks on you. That's, you know, it scars you. And so it was something that I wanted to really put into Val's character. Um, So that idea that when you talk about the fear and what it it does, because what what happens is you want to do everything possible to avoid it, to avoid having that happen again. And so I really loved when you said that. That's like the perfect um, way of describing Val's character. She's hiding. Um she's trying to keep from being hurt again. And so as a result, she doesn't see what Philip's, Philip is trying to do. Um, also because Philip kind of blows it in the beginning a little bit, right? So it's not quite, he doesn't exactly. He does, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he kind of messes it up in the beginning. So. Which is understandable because they meet and she's just like, I can't stand this company and this is what they're doing. And he's like, oh, crap. Yeah, it's understandable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna kind of roll with it until the explosion Um, comes. (laughs) Right? Yes. (laughs) If Val would have known at that moment, he would have been wearing that beard, and she would have been out the door. Yeah. There wouldn't have been a story. (laughs) The end. Go to the next one. (laughs) Well, speaking of Philip, a quote that sums him up perfectly. I I love Philip. He did screw up a little bit in the beginning, but I felt him. It's like, what else would he do? But he says, I have never been in a situation where my very existence is a direct threat to someone. And he was hanging out with Etienne. I loved him. <laughs> I loved Etienne. So is there anything about Philip's character you hope resonates with readers? Because he went on a journey of his own, I feel like. Yeah. Well, well Jen, Philip, Philip was interesting because like I said, he, he changed throughout the series because he was more, <clears throat> I had a hard time writing a millionaire character. 
I had a really hard time writing that okay. character because, um, especially now in the, the zeitgeist, it feels like in this moment. For a long time, wealth is fetishized in a lot of different types of stories, not just romances, but in general, popular media, we tend to fetishize wealth and wealth, you know, the wealthy alpha male and or the wealthy family. I mean, it's totally normal. It's a part of our culture. But I feel like there's this moment where we're kind of questioning the role of millionaires and billionaires and the uber wealthy in our society, right? And so it re- was really coming from that. <clears throat> it was really hard for me to find a way to write a sympathetic millionaire character that wasn't an alpha, an alpha hole. You know, it was hard for me as a writer. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Yeah. There's some beautiful the ro- romance writers that are doing it and they do it really well. But me as a beginning writer with the skill set that I had at my disposal was really hard for me to find a way to write him sympathetically without him coming off completely clueless. And so Philip, when he says, I never, I've never been in a situation where my very existence is a direct threat to someone. It's not true. Your existence by the very definition of what you do is a threat to many people, but he doesn't realize it until he lifts his head out of his, out of his planning and out of his beautiful, elegant city plans that are so gorgeous on paper and so gorgeous when they're done and says, oh, wow. Yeah. There are people here too. Whoops. You know, and it's like, but, but to do that, I had to tread really carefully because I didn't want him to come off as completely clueless because then who wants a clueless hero, you know? And so he had to, one of the things that had to do Mm -hmm. with Philip is he had to be worthy to start with, you know, like he had to, he couldn't, I didn't want Val to make him a better person. I wanted him to be a decent person, but just not be completely connected to what he's doing, which is more realistic to the human Mm -hmm. experience. We do things we don't realize what we're doing. Um, and so that was really important for me. So Philip was a tricky character, right? Because I had to tread a very thin line um, to make sure mm-hmm. that he was just good enough and likable enough without be- coming off as unrealistic. And that was the the whole how ha- um, yeah. the whole Henry, the, you know, the whole Prince Hal thing was just the, the closest that I could get to him. Like he's completely lost in his own, you know, pleasure and, and, and not pleasure as in a hedonist. He loves his designs. He loves his work, but he's so completely lost in it that he uses it as a shield to sit, to sort of hide the things that are more unpleasant about yeah. it. And that mm-hmm. was why. Mm-hmm. To reach for with him. It was I think it was Etienne that was like, you hide behind your work mm-hmm. and you're so yeah. hidden in it that you don't realize there are people, <clears throat> like there are situations that are going mm-hmm. on. And I was like, yes, Philip, mm-hmm. like you're not a bad guy. No, you're just like hiding. Mm-hmm. You're using this as a shield yeah. to not face like the result of what you guys are doing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so good. Um. A lot of times in stories where a character like Philip has this huge, rich family legacy to live up to and prepare for, it's both parents that are unbearable. (laughs) But in A Delicious Dilemma, we absolutely adore his mother, Grace. So what inspired the choice to have her be really likable and sweet in like contrast to his dad, who doesn't seem like a bad guy? He's just all about his business. It's about business. It. Yeah. I think it was because I wanted to somehow bring, I needed to bring Philip around. And for Philip to be intrinsically worthy, I felt like he had to have someone who is informing his better angels, right? And so if I made his mother and father both antagonists, and if mm-hmm. I made them both obstinate, then where is he getting this 
um, feeling. He, she's running a foundation. She's just as capable as her husband. She's just as intelligent. Um, but she's decided to dedicate her enormous wealth to a foundation that raises money for charities and stuff. And she decides to do that. And I just mm-hmm. feel like he, I feel like he, I felt like he needed that model because he wasn't going to get it from Andreas. Andreas is ruthless. Yeah. Andreas is like, I'm, you know, when, when Etienne describes him like Papa Andreas, I was linking it a little bit to the, um, you know, a little bit to his belief system of the great creator that walks in and says, okay, let there be light. Everything's going to go the way I want it to. And, and it would have been easy for Philip to Mm -hmm. just follow in that. So I needed that sort of character that sort of said, stop, you know, I'm the, I'm going to, and, and Grace was fun. Grace was a lot of fun to write. You know, I'm I know Southern women. I live in the South. And so Southern women are a lot of fun. They're very, they can be very sassy and they can be very intelligent, very cultured and very, there's just these great qualities that I tried to put into her that would counteract um, Andreas because, and, and there's that record. And I like the idea of a relationship in which between Andreas and, and Grace that, you know, they know each other, they love each other, they know each other. And that means they know each other's flaws as well as mm-hmm. their, um, you know, like, they're mm-hmm. good and they're bad. And you see that in them. Like she knows that her husband's a pain <laughs> and she's like sort of the, so the balance. For that. <laughs> I couldn't imagine what else would come out. What would come out otherwise? Yeah. Balance. You could tell they balance each other yeah. out. They had to. So, or else Philip wouldn't have come out that way. So do you have plans on giving any of the other characters in this novel, like their own story? Absolutely, yes. absolutely. <laughs> My hope, and I'm working on Etienne and Raffi. Yes, I'm not gonna say anything, but um, <laughs> y'all saw that cut train coming. <laughs> 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 and I'm so glad you're on board with it with me. Um, so yes, I have a plan for, I have an outline for every single story. I have an outline for Rafi. I have an outline for Olivia. I love it. Olivia is another character that I'm absolutely in love with that I'm dying to write her. Yeah. Um, I have a story mm-hmm. for Nadi. That's, um, and I have a story yeah, for Rafi. Okay. Absolutely. And so they're, they're, and we're working on that. I mean, you know, whether it comes through with special edition or how it works out, you know, that's, those are the vagaries of publishing that we can't always predict. Um, but uh, they are definitely stories that, mm-hmm. I'm, that I'm working on. They're outlined. They're they're there. We're working on it. Let's put it that way. But um, yes, okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a town I want to live in. And um, in my free time, sometimes I write short stories about characters who aren't even on the page, but live in Eastward, you know, just for, you know, fun for my newsletter. Oh, that's fun. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Fun. Pl- it, it's, a, you know, Eastward is a very personal place for me. And so it's nice to be there. It's definitely a, a, an exercise in nostalgia mm-hmm. for me. So I enjoy living in that universe and working in it. One way or another, we'll get them out there. So... <laughs> okay you sit down to work on your current work in progress set the scene Mm. early bird or night owl what time of day do you feel most productive with writing it's interesting when you ask that because um i uh i am um I'm, i'm really an early bird i'm an early bird by nature like i like to wake up sit down preferably with a coffee but i can do without for about an hour or so before i start to like really crave it but because of the realities, I work full time during the school year and, you know, I have a lot of work to do and I have, you know, children and stuff. I'm, I'm a bit of an opportunist. So like right now I have a really great office that I've been working out of in the summer and I love it. I have my books and my table, everything. And but 
normally my, my computer is my office. So wherever I go, I open my laptop and I get to work. So it sometimes it can be in, you know, during lunch, sometimes it's after school and I go to sit, you know, in a quiet place and I'm working and that my natural tendency is to work in the morning, but I will work anytime the opportunity presents itself because I, it's my, the only way I'll get anything done, honestly. But, um, but if I do mm -hmm. have the ideal situation, it's usually roll out of bed, sit down at the computer, work for uh, about an hour, go find my coffee and then come back and work until my kids demand being fed. So, cause I have two of them that <laughs> food regularly and attention. Sometimes you have to keep them from raising themselves. You mentioned earlier, you've already have the other stories yeah. plotted. So are you, would you say you're a plotter or a pantser? You're definitely a plotter, you think? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, I wrote a blog post about that some time ago about the um, this sort of like non it's kind of a non-existent binary, right? Because even the the pansteriest panster in the world has an idea of where they're going and the plotteriest plotter will follow wherever the story goes. I am definitely a planner, like I'm definitely a plotter. Like I had, um, like I will, when I write a synopsis, literally every paragraph is a different chapter and a different point of view. So I know where I'm switching, but when I sit down to write, it's whatever, sometimes the story will change direction and then I have to, and I go with it. So definitely a plotter though. I have to own it. You power on your computer. Are there specific programs you use for writing? I'm so basic. I'm so, I'm so, I know people like, they're so amazing. Like I, I should try some of these programs. I literally open Word or Excel. That's my, I love Excel for plotting. Um, and um, Rafi likes Excel hmm. too. Just throwing that out there. I love Excel. <laughs> so <laughs> really likes Excel. I like Excel because I can plot everything. But then in the end, I just, I open Word and I just go. I might not, I, I do have tools within Word that I use, right? I have little symbols that I use, color coding that I use, but for the most part, Word is my, is my um, sure. program of choice and a timer. Yeah. I love that. Cause it's like, you don't have to, you don't have to buy the big fancy stuff if you don't want to, you know, it's old faithful word, you know, <laughs> so I, I love it. And, and I will tell you for a long time, I can't talk it down. I used to use Google Docs a lot. Now, Google Docs was great because you could access it anywhere you wanted to go and I can access it on my phone. So one of the things I do do is when I'm done, I usually have a master document in Google Docs. And as I'm working in Word, I'll back it up there, you know, and then I'll email the document to myself too, because I'm, I've, I almost one time lost like 30,000 words worth of work and that terrified me for life. And so I was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm going to back yeah. everything up. And so the nice thing about Google Docs is you can yeah. really open it. I don't want to do OneDrive because OneDrive is, you know, it's a Microsoft product. It's a little bit big. And um, so I slowed down my phone, but the Google Drive is great because then you can put your documents in there. And then if I find myself in a situation where I can do some extra work and I don't have my computer, I can open my Google Docs work there. And then there's just a lot of copy and pasting. And I just leave a a note on the date of last edit out in the margin so that I know what, because I'm another one, I'll mix up drafts. I found myself, you know, editing drafts that are like two weeks old. And I'm like, why, why do you do this? Why are you like this? So I try to keep really good notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I try to keep really good notes for that, but I am basic. Are there any necessities needed around while you're writing? Not really. Water, water. I try not to snack at my desk um, because I, can accumulate like big time calories that way. Now I will sometimes have a bag of nuts and I do keep fruit on my desk and 
God, I'm such a liar. Yes, I do keep calories. I have a bits of chocolate <laughs> that I keep in my drawer. And so every time I finish like a really, like towards the end of the day, when I've had several writing sessions, I'll have that bit of chocolate. So yeah, that's. It's that's, a treat. It's a you treat. It's a treat. It's a treat while I'm eating, <laughs> I, I, while I'm typing, right? Because I'm trying to get as many words down, but then of course. Time, it's a reward. Pavlovian response. Do you set daily writing goals or simply write until you know you need to step away? No, I do set writing goals. Um, and I, one thing that I've, one, one thing that I've learned to do is to chunk it. Right. So one of the things like this is Camp NaNoWriMo right now, and I really like it because they have a wonderful platform that you can use for tracking your word count. And I don't have to invent anything new. I just go there and work it out. And usually I set a minimum goal. If I've written 500 words, I'm doing okay. It's a minimum. Um, and then <clears throat> anything more is, is a bonus. And I set it purposely low like that because there are some days where I just can't get to my computer or there are some days where I'm just doing marketing, you know, like I'm collecting, you know, I'm hitting people up for reviews or I'm doing, you know, you know, talking to blogs or creating digital because I do all of my own um sort of the graphics and things right now. So all of that stuff, sometimes I, I just can't get to the writing part. And so I, if I set a 500 word goal, I can reach that. I can reach, even handwriting it, I can reach it. Um, and then um, anything that's over is like extra and it makes me feel, it makes me feel good because I get it done. So, but I do set word goals all yeah. the time. Yeah, I, I can't, it gives me a, I'm, I'm a extremely like, I don't want to say externally motivated person, but I do get motivated by seeing those, those word goals getting hit. It really does motivate. So some round out questions. What's the first song on the soundtrack to your life? I am very much like Val. I love, I love disco music and it's for the same reason. My mom always played it when I was growing up. And so Donna Summers, I feel love. Like, I feel like that is my like that is one of the first songs oh, yes. I remember. And I think a Sam Smith redid it and it's amazing. Um, so I'll listen to either version, but I really have a soft spot for her voice because it was the first one that I heard. Mm-hmm. So that would definitely yeah. be the first song on my soundtrack. And it's groovy. Mm-hmm. Like it's groovy. I love her. Her song Bad Girls is on my run playlist. And it's just <laughs> so different. Like this disco song will come on, but it's like so happy and fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I age myself. My playlists age me because I have a whole workout list that's all 70s music and 80s music. And nice. (laughs) I love it. Ebook, audiobook, or print copy? What's your preferred reading method? Whatever I can get whatever I can get. Like I am, I, I love print books. Like I have a keeper shelf for romances that I really love that I keep them there. And I'm like, you know, this is the, I can break this down, but you know, I don't care. I mean, when I'm driving or biking, I want to listen to an audiobook. when I'm, you know, in the kitchen, I have my ebook. Cause you know, it's, you know, I don't want to get, if I get something on it, I can wipe it off. And then it's a luxury to have a paperback. Like it's a luxury to sit in bed and have a paperback. Most of my reading is on e-reader before convenience. And, but I don't care. I'm not picky. I am not, I am, I'm, I'm kind of a reading whore. When it comes to reading and writing. As long as I can read the book, right? Right. (laughs) Equal opportunist. I don't care. No, just give it to me. There was a time, look, my mom used to buy used books. It was because we were poor, you know? So I, um, I am not picky. I have not, no. Mm-mm. It's the same thing with, with, with television. Like the story, give it to me. Just give me the stories. What's one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? Oh, one hill. Ah, this one. This one's important because it took me a minute. I have to think about it. I believe in writing what you know. That's the most classic uh, writing advice. However, 
And I know this isn't always popular in this age, I think, because people get it wrong. But you should also write what you want to know. In other words, I want to get to know a different experience, um, explore it, research it, and then write it really well. And that is the best way to get to know that experience. So, you know, because if you always stay with what just just what you know, then you're not really that you're not building that empathy that you need to really get outside of that experience and learn other things. So write what you want, you know, and then write what you want. This sounds like the teacher in you coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're right. (laughs) 15 years from now, you're writing your memoir. What's the title? Oh, who knew? Who knew? Question mark. Who knew? I didn't (laughs) know. I didn't know. (laughs) Every day, everything that happens to me, is like a bonus. It's like extra. It's more than I thought I was going to have the day before, you know? And so every time somebody like, every time somebody says, we're going to publish your story or we're going to publish your book, it was always more than I thought I was going to get that day. So who knew? I hope I look back and I can look at a line of books and say, I didn't know that was going to happen, but there it is. It would be a nice dream. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> What's one film you will never stop watching? Ooh, ah, oh, you know, that was hard because there's some like I'm one of those comfort watcher. Like I'm a person who watched the same thing over and over because it's comfortable. So like during the pandemic, I remember I watched um, Lucifer like a hundred times over and over because it was just so comforting the humor and the bodiness and just the it was just great I just loved it and so I have a lot of shows that when I love them like WandaVision I watched it a hundred times Loki I've already watched it a hundred times who knew I had that much time I I do it but one movie that Mm -hmm. I watch over and over is Pretty Woman and I know that it's like the most it is so problematic in so many ways but that romance arc I just it is so good So I will watch that movie until probably till I die. Somebody's going to tell me, throw that movie away and set it on fire. That is such a problem. I know. I'm a problem. I'm still watching it. <laughs> I can't help it. I know. So bad. No, that movie, it is good. It is so good. That is such an iconic. Oh. Now, I will say the slap definitely pissed me off. Yes. And I felt it through the screen. Yes. Oh, my gosh. But the movie is fan- It's fantastic. I wanted his body <laughs> over that balcony quick. You want to know what that balcony can do? Yes. <laughs> That's what it can do right there. Who was your celebrity crush as a teenage girl? Okay, so I, um, everybody, I fell in love with everybody. I was, I loved, I, I, and I didn't write his name down. I can't believe, you know the guy who played Buck Rogers? You remember Buck Rogers? That was the cheesiest space show. And he was the, he was the main character. <laughs> oh my God. And... <laughs> I liked him and Aaron Gray, who was his love interest. Like, I loved both of them. And those were my mm-hmm. favorite. <laughs> oh, I don't know who I love more. She was so That's pretty. Fine. She was so pretty with those big gray eyes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Or maybe they were blue. I don't remember. I know they were clear, her eyes. She looked so cute in that, like, aluminum polyester spacesuit. It was all white. You know who, who dresses like her a little bit? Um, the Black <laughs> Widow. You ever see, have you seen? I don't know if you've seen Black Widow yet. But Natasha Romanoff's white suit, you know, the snow suit mm. that she wears, the white one, same one. She's great. It was great. <laughs> that shows. Did you ever find it? Go watch it. <laughs> it is a space soap opera. I think he was like, he, he was like a, an astronaut who goes back in time and ends up, I don't even know where he ends up. 
in the past, in the future. And he has to, he's trying to make his way back. Mm-hmm. And I think he realizes he doesn't want to go back. Yeah, it's a crazy show. I love it. I'm so old. <laughs> well, this might answer the question, but what's one thing you're nostalgic for? <laughs> Drive-throughs, driving movie theaters, driving movie theaters. Because when I was growing up, they were a big deal. Yes. And so you, yes, they're so cool. Especially in Florida that it can get so hot. Um, the only thing is you have to use a lot of insect spray. And so back in the day, you, we, we, could, we, we didn't always use the insect spray. We would use like, you know, the Avon, there's an Avon perfume that acts as an insect repellent. And I would use, we would use that. So we'd spray it on us and spray it in the car. And then we would go to, because Florida has a problem with mosquitoes. And that's where I experienced the drive-thrus when I was a teenager in Florida. And um, yeah, that was the, I miss those. I feel like they should bring those back. Especially during the pandemic, right? I miss the drive-thru. I miss, yeah. I miss the drive-thru. I miss Blockbuster. Blockbuster. (laughs) I'm like, kids these days just don't have the experience of either going to the movies or even renting movies. Like, it was an experience. And you (laughs) know what? You, I think the idea that you couldn't always find what you wanted and so you had to make do. Yes. Yes. So it's a little bit like going to the bookstore and not knowing if a book is going to be in stock. Well, now we don't have that, right? Because we go to Amazon and we click and get everything we want. And that's why we have 3 million things on our TBR. Exactly. But back in the day, you'd have to get what you could get. And it was like an adventure still. Like you could find something and not know what you were getting. It was different. Kids don't They don't understand that uncertainty. That and the one that I've always said is at the end of a season of a TV show, like in the summer when the season would end in May and you had to wait all summer to find out about that cliffhanger. (laughs) Now kids are just like, oh, I'm just going to go to the next season. And I'm like, you don't understand what it was like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is why right which is why i kind of love disney plus a little bit like i thought i would hate disney because i was like oh the disney overlords are taking over everything yes but what do i love about it they make you wait for the next episode like when so like look i'm gonna say loki's the latest one true i because i was a little bit inured a little bit to the netflix or to stream everything together i loved waiting for that next i love the excitement that i would wake up on a monday and say oh my god it's two more days to loki and now the season is ended and i know there's a season two coming (laughs) and i'm so excited about it like and that is a feeling that you lose with the streaming and sometimes deferring that experience that pleasure is, it is a good thing. It is. It builds the anticipation. The telenovelas used to do that too. The stories, the, yep. like the Young and the Restless and all of that. But we used to, I used to watch the Spanish ones. I even did a talk recently um, with uh, Adriana Herrera. She had like a really cool telenovela series for her new book that was coming out one week to claim it all. Oh, on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Over on Instagram. And it was such a cool series because I remember we would, you would wait for that next episode and then all the soap operas would go on break over the summer mm-hmm. we were like what am i gonna do over the summer mm-hmm. oh my god but you'd figure it out because like it was, was <laughs> everything. and it was great and we don't do that anymore so sad tears mm-hmm. but disney's bringing it to us so we're good is there a category <laughs> romance series you wish never went away yeah i can live on the, especially the ones that i love a lot there is one and I'm going to talk about this one because I always had this bias about kids and romance. Like, I'm like, I don't, I want babies. I want babies. Don't give me no babies and romance. Babies are a lot of work. 
they're not sexy. So I, and I have this bias in my mind and it's such a, you know, it closed me off to a lot of really great stories. Then I read McKenna Lee's, um, in special edition, McKenna Lee writes this amazing series mm. about children with special needs and each couple is dealing with one, you know, like the first book is a, a, a mom who has a three-year-old Down syndrome daughter and the the, the father's kind of rejected mm-hmm. um, her and the daughter because the you know daughter has Down syndrome. She moves to a small town. She's you know to work. She's trying to you know sort of rebuild her life because it's a hard thing. The stories are so beautiful. The children are so well written, and I'm just like I love these books. And so she has a second one in the Key of Family, and that one is oh my god, I, I cried like mm-hmm. so much, and I was like you know what, I, I have deleted that trope yeah. from my never want to read list i have moved it off that list because that series is so beautiful <laughs> no really <laughs> well you know what sometimes you can you can be a little bit narrow right so you know i was always like oh, i don't wanna no she has helped me for yeah. that she's cured me of that she writes some of she, those two books so far she has a third book coming out now um in the series and i really hope she just keeps going just yeah. just keep on because they're so beautiful and she mm-hmm. does disability mm-hmm. so well like this not even disability exceptionalities that's the word we use in education circles she does exceptionalities really well and she really d- does it with dignity and respect and mm-hmm. from a place of knowledge and i love her book so much so far i really hope she keeps on going yeah the beautiful book yeah I got it from my real, a really good friend of mine who, um, you know, she got published a little bit before me. We were writing along, you know, at the same time, but she got published before me. And um, she writes beautiful books. And she told me, she said, you know, Sarah, that um, you don't have to write every day. You know, you have that thing where it says write every day, write every day, write every day. She said, you don't have to write every day. You know, sometimes you'll edit. Sometimes you'll ideate. Sometimes you'll outline. Sometimes you'll just think about your story. And that's okay, too. It's all feeding the writing well. So when I... Um, I'm done with the story and, and, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do with myself now? You know, um, before I go into editing or before I start something else, I'll settle down and I'll read and I'll relax and I'll rest. And that's okay too, because that feeds the well also. So this idea that you always have to be producing, producing, it's just the formula for burnout. You have to kind of pace yourself. So it's okay. Yeah. if you, Even though I set writing goals, right? One thing I left out of that is they are minimum goals when I'm drafting, but when I'm done and I'm ready to edit Mm -hmm. or when I'm ready, when I'm done with a project, I will take some time off and I'll just read, you know, and go back to why I love what I do so much, you know, and I'll hit my TBR and I'll choose something. Um, And Mm -hmm. I I think it's the best advice because I've never felt burned out um, since I started following that advice. I feel refreshed. Well, shout out to that friend. (laughs) She's a good girl. She's a good girl. Sounds like a simple piece of advice that goes a long way. It really does. Absolutely. Yeah, like you said, I think I'm not a writer, but I can imagine because you hear this advice of like write every day, write every day. That can lead to burnout. Um, I feel like creativity is like a well, you know, it, it really is a well and you have to fill it. And sometimes I'm a per- I, I've discovered something about myself. I really write better when I have a lot of models. Like if I read a lot of great romances, I might mm-hmm. pull a nugget out and say, well, you know, this could really work for me, this structure or this, you know, device or this trope, you know, and, and you only get that from reading other books. I always get a little bit terrified um, when teachers, especially lit teachers and writers who tell me that they don't, they haven't read a book 
in, in years for whatever reason. I'm like, how do you do that? Because it's like you need that. Yeah, how? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and I understand a lot of it is like productivity and it's not productive to read. Yeah, it is to read. It is the most important thing that you can do. Like I'll, and, and then in general, that carries over to people in general in my life who don't read just as a rule and they're doing, and I'm like, how do you live? How do you live? <laughs> like, how do you not do that? Everybody's different, of course. But as a, I think when you're working with the language arts in any way, um, it's important to, to take care and nurture, nurture yourself. And that's how you do it by, by going back to the things you love. And we love books. So much fun. Well, this has been such a fun opportunity. I mean, thank you so much for letting us start our morning off with you. Um, Tell us where everyone can follow you and keep up with you online. Oh, um, well, I have a a website, right? It's like official like author website. Well, it has a lot of information. Which is beautiful, by the way. I have to say, your website's beautiful. I'm going to give a shout out to Meet Cute Creative. They are my website providers. They created the website, Jade uh, Jade Webb, who also writes books. Um, she's got a beautiful series of <laughs> romances. Another bit of catnip, but she's got a series of romances that she's written. Also, keeps this incredible. Since you ask, I'm gonna throw this out there. Totally random. Angelina Lopez. Angelina Lopez wrote um, "Serving Sin," which is the third book mm-hmm. of her series, and it's a bodyguard romance. And oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. But anyway, so so Jada has this. Jade has this beautiful um, website service that she provides for authors, and she's the one who created my website. So you can go there and you can, you know, all of my links are there. I have a media mm-hmm. kit there. I have, I have downloadable free books, I mean, like stories, really, not books, but stories. Um, I, I'm active on Twitter. It's my name, Sarah Taino. I'm also active on Instagram somewhat. I try to post pictures and not make too much of a fool of myself. And then I, um, the other other places I'm less active because like Facebook overwhelms me. I do have a, a reader group that I kind of communicate with, but it's there's a lot happening on Facebook and I get overwhelmed easily. So those are my two biggest places. So Twitter, Sarah Taino, and um, Instagram also, Sarah Taino. So hit me up. I'd be happy to chat. Well, all of Sarah's information will be in the show notes, listeners. Make sure you check it out. Follow her. Keep up with her. The book, when does it officially come out? When does it hit Harlequin's website? August 1st or September 1st? Really interesting. So they, even though it's August 24th is when it should hit um, ebooks. You can pre-order now. It says August 1st. It's really November, uh, September 1st is when the paperbacks are available on shelf. So I always tell everybody August 24th is when those books, the ebook will be available. And then 9-1 is when the paperback will be available, but you can pre-order it now. Um, and if you sign up for my mailing list, um, as, as soon as I can, I get like, I can, you know, make sure that it's okay. I'm going to post an excerpt of the opening you know, chapter, just give some people a taste. Um, and I really am grateful for you two ladies because you guys, you know, the, the posts and everything that you did that really, like, it was almost like I was seeing my books through your eyes. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that, that made sense. I didn't think about that. That made sense. Yeah, it sounds like a good book. I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Like the whole fear thing. I'm still like, yeah, but that's, that's it. So really, I appreciate you guys so much. You have no idea. Thank you. I am going to get not only a, a physical copy here, but your UK cover. I was like, oh, I have to order the copy from Mills and Boo. Oh, I have to see this now. It's gorgeous. 
<laughs> okay, I have to check this out. In fact, when they sent it to me, when they sent it to me, I remember I opened the 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 Essie cover, the American cover is gorgeous because there's joy and and she looks just like that. But when I opened that mm-hmm. UK cover, I was like, oh my god, where did you find this incredibly gorgeous model? Yeah, how did I score that on my cover? What it's gorgeous. gorgeous guy. I was I was very grateful. I mean, they did right by me. So again, listeners, make sure you check show notes because we do leave Harlequin. We leave Mills and Boone UK and Mills and Boone Australia. So wherever you are, get your hands on a copy of Delicious Dilemma. And please make sure you come back to the podcast. (laughs) I'm like like a flea. You won't get rid of me now. So... We would love it. So um, make sure you all follow Sarah and Sarah and I will be back with our next episode and have a lovely day, everybody. Bye.